Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And giving ongoing and, and going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of God. Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Uh, We are in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And so far, we're only three weeks in, but so far we, what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is we've seen the announcement of Jesus by John the Baptist in the first few verses, and then we have seen the arrival of Jesus on the scene, okay, and his baptism and his temptation. And what we saw was that those events set the trajectory for his entire life and ministry that we're going to unpack in the book of Mark. Now this week, Jesus gathers his first followers, but... Before we take a look, a closer look at our passage, let me start with a short story, all right? This may or may not be true. Not long ago, in the Mediterranean Sea, Italian fishermen rescued a man who was floating in the water unconscious, and he happened to have two gunshot wounds in his back. The medic who was examining him found a tiny chip that was implanted right here in his hip. The only information that was on that chip was a safety deposit box number in Zurich, okay? This may or may not be true. And when the man woke up, when he came back to consciousness, he couldn't remember anything about his life, didn't know who he was, didn't know his name, didn't know where he came from, didn't know where he was going. So he followed the only lead he had. And when he made it to the safety deposit box in Zurich, he opened it up to find passports of many nationalities with all kinds of different names on them, piles of cash in different currencies from around the country or around the world, and a handgun, okay? And out of that safety deposit box, he took two things with him, a handgun and a passport with what name on it? Jason Bourne. That's right. All right, so it turns out this wasn't true. The Jason Bourne trilogy, all right, uh, is a few years old now, and I don't actually think it's a trilogy anymore. I think they've kind of piled on the movies since then. But what was so great and so compelling about that original trilogy that I love so much was at its heart, Jason Bourne is a story about a man trying to find his identity, okay? The action scenes are fantastic. The acting's good. The writing's good. But watching a man learn who he is and all of the implications that that has for his life, well, that's a compelling story all the time. Same is true for us, I would propose. Knowing who you really are has drastic implications for your life, especially if the news is something shocking, like, oh my gosh, I'm a trained assassin, and my own government is trying to kill me, right? Like, that that changes the way you're going to act. That changes your day-to-day behavior. It starts to make sense of these skills that you find yourself, just taking guys out with your pinky. It makes sense of things in your life, all right? Now, I'm not saying the born situation is identical to our situation, but it's also not the craziest analogy I've ever come up with. Hear me out. At various times in our life, Uh, sometimes with more urgency and sometimes with less, we're all asking ourselves that common human question. I mean, who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? 
What can explain what I'm supposed to do next? There's a narrative arc to my life. Is there a narrative arc to my life? Is there a story I fit into? Or are all these things just flying by as like random events in my life? What is the story that makes sense in my life? There's a novelist, an essayist named David Foster Wallace, who I really appreciate. And he one time wrote this. It's so true, it's trite. Human beings are narrative animals. We need narrative like we need space or time. It's a built-in thing to our life. In other words, we can't not tell a story to try to make sense of all the experiences of our life. We're all looking for a narrative that orients us in life. And I think one of the main challenges that we all face, whether it's middle, whether you're in middle school or whether you're retired or whether you're anywhere in between, is that other people are constantly trying to tell you the story to make sense of your life, okay? So your parents, your teachers, your colleagues, your spouse, your friends, they're going to have certain expectations for you. They're going to have certain assumptions about the way you should and shouldn't go about living. For example, you may have heard the story at some point, either explicitly or implicitly, that to... Um, that you have to be successful, that you have to kind of move from one win to another win in life to be loved or to be accepted. So the key to happiness on this story, the thing that's going to tie your life together, is success after success after achievement after achievement. Or you may have heard a story that is something along these lines. It's, it's actually not success so much, but it's the right relationships that are going to make your life worth living, that are going to bring you true happiness. So it's the right guy, it's the right girl, it's the right spouse, it's the right family, the right kids. And if your relationships are good, then you're good, right? That's a story that, help t- that helps tie our life together. We've inherited these stories our whole life, and we're going to live one of them out, all right? That's what David Foster Wallace is saying. You can't not live out one of these stories. In fact, I think that the very culture of a place tells us stories, all right, so I came from Northwestern University, which told students there certain stories. Okay, and the story that Northwestern told the students was that you mean something, you matter if your resume has the right collection of items on it. Okay, it was a culture of the resume. Now, I've only been here in this place for a little while, about a month, but I think this valley is telling us stories as well, right? It's asking us to sort of live into a story that's going to make sense of our life. And again, I've only been here a little while, but let me know if I'm in the ballpark, okay? Here is a story our valley might be telling us. You're here because you've got something figured out. You've got a secret that not a lot of other people have figured out in this world, this country, all right? And the secret is something like this, that you've figured out how to work where you play, all right? And you have achieved the balance. All right? Now, there are those like hard-charging, New York type, the workaholics that we all kind of say, ah, yeah, they do the work good, but they just don't know how to play. You know, they, they have no sense of awe beyond their own bank account, or so the story goes. But here, we figured out balance, right? We figured out how to live in a place that inspires awe and contemplation and makes us feel small, right? But at the same time, invest ourselves in work and vocation that matters and that furthers the good. All right, we, oh, and by the way, then while we do that, we raise children who are environmentally conscious, uh, athletically competent, intellectually above average, spiritually sensitive, morally responsible, et cetera, et cetera. Like we, we're holding all the pieces together in the balance, 
That might be the story this valley is telling us. Again, you guys have to tell me. You've been here longer. But it sometimes helps to have outside eyes when you come into a place, doesn't it? So to be able to put it all together, that's living the dream. Now, is achieving the balance the story that will make ultimate sense of your life? Is it even possible? No. Okay? And neither is success. That's not going to be the story that can carry the weight of your existence. Neither is the perfect collection of right relationships. It just doesn't happen. Okay? Broken people with broken people are going to create broken relationships. So putting our hope in any of these stories isn't going to work. None of these stories, as good as they are, have the power to help you answer that question, who am I? Not really. Not in a deep way. And yet... It's so tempting to believe the stories other people tell us, especially when we want people to like us and especially when we want to believe those stories ourselves. All of us wake up from time to time on a foreign shore asking the only question that really matters. How did I get here? Who am I? And what in the world am I supposed to do next? We need a better story. We need a better word to make sense of the narrative of our life. And the passage that Liza just read for us in Mark 1 makes a bold claim that I hope that we can hear this morning and seriously consider together. This is what Mark tells us. The call of Jesus on your life is the orienting and central word that you need to thrive. His call for you is the unique and compelling story that can make sense of who you are and where you're going. Okay? It's a bold claim. It's saying this is the better story than anything else you've ever heard. And this narrative actually makes sense of your life. The call of Jesus to his first followers is also the call of Jesus to us. It's the word you and I need to be reminded of this morning. So I want to point out three things about the call of Jesus in our life. The call of Jesus is radical. It's, it's totally reorienting. Okay? The call of Jesus is transformative. It pulls you into a bigger story than you've been in before. And then the call of Jesus is deeply, deeply gracious in your life. So the call of Jesus is radical. Notice, first of all, how when Jesus calls these men to follow him, I mean, it's really simple. He just says, guys, come follow me. But when he does it, he calls them by name. Okay? He invites Simon, who is Peter, the apostle Peter, and Andrew. And then he does, invites James and John. And he calls these guys by name, individually. He goes out to find them and speaks their name to him. Now, this is the same for followers of Jesus at all times, in all places. This is the same for us today. Jesus invites you into a relationship with himself as an individual. It's not enough, kids, for your parents to believe that Jesus loves you. You've got to believe Jesus loves you. It's not enough for your spouse to put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus. You personally need to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. To be a Christian, all of us need to hear that good news. Our soul needs to hear Jesus speaking our name and saying, I call you. Will you follow me? His promise in the gospel is for you personally. When he came to live and die and rise again. He, he didn't have humanity in general in mind. He didn't have the masses in mind. I need to go save this, this group of people. He had individuals in mind, individuals in this room. He held you in his mind while he died for you and while he rose for you and then while he called you to be with him in his kingdom. 
The call of Jesus is radically personal. You can't outsource it, okay? You can't receive it secondhand. It's a call that he has given to you and that you must personally respond to him. It's also radically comprehensive. What do we mean here? Jesus leaves no parts of these men's lives untouched. So Peter and Andrew leave their nets behind to follow Jesus. Now, their nets, of course, were their livelihood. Okay, Their nets were how they made money. It was their security. It was their future plans. It was how they provided for their families. It was their 401k. It was their nest egg. And Jesus says, follow me. And they, and they, and they, leave, and they enter the unknown with Jesus. Okay, So security, financial, at least, clarity, um, or know nothing about the future except I know it's with Jesus. And these guys made that choice. Okay, They left everything behind to follow him. And in the same way, um, James and John leave all of that behind, but they also leave their father sitting in the boat. Now, Jesus asked them not only to commit their future to him, but their family as well, Okay, which in that culture was probably one of the most valuable things in the world. Now, to be clear... These men do go fishing again, okay? We learn that later in the Gospels. They don't give up their nets entirely. And these men do see their families again. They don't abandon and throw away their family relationships. Um, They don't leave them behind in an absolute sense, uh, disregarding them or throwing them away like trash. But when Jesus calls someone to follow him into the future, he's saying that your relationship with him is now the most important relationship in your life. It's more important than the plans that drive us to work so hard. It's more important than any relationship, more important than our career. He doesn't call you to abandon these things, absolutely, but he does ask you to reorient everything around him, okay? So now, instead of just leaving our 401k behind, our 401k is now reoriented around Jesus. Instead of leaving our family behind, it's now reoriented around Jesus, Are you starting to see how radical and comprehensive the call of Jesus is? I mean, how completely reorienting his story is for you? I think there's some of us here this morning who haven't really considered how deep this call goes. I'm not even talking about the difference between those who do believe in Jesus and those who don't. I'm saying us Christians in the room, we have not yet considered how comprehensive and reorienting the call of Jesus is on our life. I'm not sure any of us really have. In fact, let's consider this for a moment. Consider our planet, consider our world, right? We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's beaut- it's lovely, it's snowing outside, don't get too distracted, you gotta pay attention up here. But it's it's a gorgeous place, okay? It's intricate. God designed it and it's huge. I mean the cultures, the ecosystems, the variety that He's packed into this one planet are unbelievable. They should blow our circuits, okay? But do you know how many of our little planet fits inside the sun, which is just a few miles away? A few miles away. 1,300,000 Earths, 300, Earths fit inside the sun, okay? So all the intricacy of our planet, we are a pinprick. And the, the, the sun is this huge, towering mass that's just right out there in space, okay? But you know what? If the sun were a speck of dust on your finger... Uh, do you know how big our galaxy would be? The size of the United States. Okay, so now our sun, which is 1,300,000 Earths, is shrunken down to the size of a speck of dust. Our galaxy is now the size of the United States. Okay? Do you know how many galaxies there are out there in the universe? 
You don't know because we don't know as humanity. But we've observed, we think we've observed 100 billion galaxies, 100 billion United States if our sun was the size of a speck of dust. And we think that as our telescopic technology increases, that number will just go up by hundreds of billions more. Here's my point. The God who imagined that at the beginning of time and the God who just spoke it into existence with words out of his mouth You don't invite that God into your life as your personal assistant, okay? You don't invite him into your life to help you with small details like, you know, your accounting problems or your parenting problems or your anxiety difficulties. Those are real and he will address them, but you don't invite Jesus into your life as your right-hand man, okay? He invites you into his life to make your story bigger than it is. This is radically comprehensive. This is radically reorienting for all of us. The call of Jesus is radical because now your life revolves around him and not the other way around. And that can be scary to submit to that sort of lordship. But on the other side of that cosmic shift is great hope and great life. Because even though it's a radical shift, it is deeply transformative as we enter into God's story. The call of Jesus is transformative. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he doesn't intend to leave you as he found you. And he intends to change you drastically. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they began their day as fishermen. That's how they made their their money. They ended their day as fishermen as well. Did you notice that? When he asked them to become fishers of men, they started their day in one career track. They ended their day in another career track, but they kind of didn't change. They started as fishermen They ended as fishermen. In verse 17, we read that phrase that I'll make you fishers of men. It's an interesting phrase because in the biblical cosmology, the way that the Bible talks about the sea and the ocean and large bodies of water, the sea in the Bible, the sea in the ancient Near East imagination was always a place of chaos. The Jewish folks were afraid of the sea. The sea was where danger was. It's where darkness was, chaos was. And in that at worldview, it's where evil came from, okay? In fact, there's these fascinating lines throughout the Bible, and Revelation will read that in heaven, the sea was no more. doesn't mean there's no water in heaven. It means that the source of chaos and evil has been taken away. And so these men are called to be fishers of men. And I think part of what Jesus is driving at is that he's calling them to move into the world, move into the chaos, move into the difficulty and the darkness and even the evil of this world and bring and rescue others out of the chaos. Rescue others out of the darkness. It's a great image. Um, he's saying that, he, that he's calling his people who follow him to be redeemers, to, to bring forgiveness, to bring healing where there was brokenness. They're still fishermen, but now they're just going after much bigger game. When we follow Jesus, we don't become less ourselves we become more ourselves, all right? He, he transforms us, not into someone else entirely. He doesn't, like, take kind of individual people and then call them and turn them into robotic automatons for his kingdom. You know, no, the, the opposite. He actually brings more freedom and more personality to the people that he calls into his kingdom. Fishers of men. It's a great image because it also captures how small, I think, our dreams tend to be. Okay, he's calling people to follow him 
and he doesn't obliterate their personality. They're still fishermen, but call them to participate in the ways that he's at work in the world. Now, he's offering a bigger story, a chance to join him in that work. Now, what I think we can get confused, and I think people have gotten confused, is, is that when, um, when Jesus calls you and, and, and he brings you into his kingdom and he sends you on his mission, it means your life needs to totally change, right? In some ways, it does. In other ways, he just sends you back into the exact same things you've always been doing, but with a new mission, with a wider perspective and with a bigger story. So, for example, let's consider some of the most mundane, boring things you and I do in our everyday life and see if we can't connect them to the mission that God calls us on. Here's one, cleaning your house, okay? How in the world can housekeeping be part of, be transformed into extending the kingdom of God in the world? Marilyn Robinson is one of my favorite authors. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Gilead. Um, if anybody's ever read it, beautiful book. But she wrote this in one of her essays. We have colonized a hostile planet, and we must stanch every opening where cold and dark might pour through and destroy the false climate that we make. The tiny simulations of forgotten seasons beside the Euphrates in Eden. At a certain level, housekeeping, cleaning house, is a regime of small kindnesses. How awesome is that line? Cleaning your house is a regime of small kindnesses, which taken together make the world salubrious, I don't know what that means, savory and warm. I think the acts of comfort offered and received within a household is precisely sacramental. What is she saying? She's saying that when Jesus calls you to follow him, you don't stop cleaning your house, okay? You're still a fisherman. You still do the same things you've been doing, but those mundane, normal, everyday details, uh, you know, uh, details get, get transformed into a bigger story. And now as we clean house, we are participating in what God has always been participating in from the Garden of Eden, which is taking order and warmth and love and pushing out the boundaries into a dark world, Okay. It's a regime of small kindnesses. As we invite folks into our house, the hospitality we show isn't just, you know, folks coming over and us going over. Now it's we're participating in God's story of extending the boundaries of Eden in the whole world. Okay? He calls us into a bigger story. How about something as boring as banking? My apologies to all bankers in the room. Okay? Tim Keller put it this way. He's a pastor in New York City. Think of God as an investment banker. He leveraged his resources to create a whole world of new life. In the same way, what if you see human need not being met? You see a talent or a resource that, that, the need can, or the, that can meet the need, and then you invest your resources at your risk and cost so that the need is met and the result is new jobs, new products, better quality of life. What you're doing, he says, is godlike. Okay? So again, head into the bank the normal transactions of money, right? We just think we're going along our normal day. Still fishermen, still bankers, but God has called our activities into a bigger story, and now he's calling us to be godlike in the way we use our resources, to, at our risk, invest resources for the good and the value of those around us. Jesus, these men started as fishermen and ended as fishermen, but they were transformed and brought up into a bigger story. And it's the same thing that God does for everyone he calls into his kingdom. Because what transforms your life into a bigger story is not that you get more attention for it, more fame for it, 
more money for it. We tend to think of big stories as famous people, not in God's kingdom. What makes your life bigger in God's kingdom is that your life is no longer about your life, okay? It's about God and the way he's at work in the world. And it's going to look just as normal and ordinary as it always was, but it's been transformed into a bigger story. What was fleeting and temporary becomes eternal. What was self-centered becomes God-centered. And what was little becomes cosmic. The call of Jesus is radically reorienting. The call of Jesus is deeply transformational. Finally, the call of Jesus is deeply gracious. What Jesus does in this passage is unusual, to say the least, maybe unheard of in the ancient world. In the first century Jewish world, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, if you wanted to follow anybody, uh, you had to submit your resume, you had to prove your stuff, and you had to hit the marks that you had to hit to stay with them, okay? So young Jewish boys, they would pretty much all start with a rabbi to learn the basics of their faith. And then over the years, only the elite would move on to the next level. And so by the time you're an adult, you only have a rabbi. You only have, you're only a disciple of a man who's teaching you about God if you are the best of the best, the brightest, uh, the sharpest, the most connected, if you've passed every test and he has accepted your resume. And these four men that Jesus encountered on the lake would have been washed out long before he met them. Okay, I mean, no offense to fishermen, but they were fishermen for a reason. All right, These were not the elite academic progressives of their day. They were not the highly connected, the wealthy, the upwardly mobile. These were the most normal guys that we've ever met. And Jesus did the most surprising thing. He initiates with them. He doesn't even wait for them to come and ask if they can hang around, he goes out and calls them by name and calls them to follow him, the washed up, the least expected of anyone that a rabbi would want to choose. And it's not because there's anything special about them, no smarts, no privilege, no position. And it's not even, this is important, it's not even because he saw a latent potential in them that, they would, that he would be able to let out one day, right? That he saw what no one else could see. No, there was actually nothing there to see, okay? These were just like, normal dudes like you and me. In fact, not only were they normal, they were deeply flawed like you and me. I mean, Peter, Simon Peter, who he calls on the shore in our story, will go on to, in the, in the Bible that we're about to, in the Gospel of Mark that we're going to look at, he'll go on to call Jesus Satan, whoops, and then under the slightest pressure at Jesus' death, death and crucifixion, he, from a little slave girl, he will, um, he will abandon Jesus and reject him three times. Okay? This, was not, um, this was not a model hero of the faith. Okay? This was not a man who we should necessarily model our life of virtue after. Jesus didn't select him and pick him and initiate with him because of something in him. He went after him because he loved him. Okay, and that's it. That's the only reason Jesus initiated with him. And it's always going to be like this with Christianity. Jesus always makes the first move. He always initiates with his people. God doesn't love us because we are qualified. He qualifies us for his kingdom because he loves us and has called us and has sent us out in his name. This is the gospel of grace. Okay? I think many people reject Christianity without knowing what they're rejecting. The heart of Christianity, it's this gospel of grace. The the fact that God loves you, accepts you, and makes incredible promises to you 
about your past, your present, and your future. Remember, he called Peter knowing he would one day abandon him, and he still called him. Okay? I mean, that's grace. It's not based on spiritual insight or virtue or connectivity or smarts. It's based on Jesus initiating those he loves and calling them into his family. And that is a uniquely secure story to hold your life together because in this story, if you did nothing to achieve it to get in, you can do nothing to mess up to get out. It's Jesus who holds your story together for you. It's not on you. He promises to complete and fulfill your entire life. Living within the story of the gospel is difficult for us. As we wrap up here, we have, for, we have forgetful, unfaithful, and wandering hearts. There are, there are so many stories out there vying for our attention. The success ladder story, the right relationship story, maybe the balance story of the valley, however you want to call it. These are all vying for our heart's attention and our mind's attention, and so many of them seem reasonable and even obvious at first glance. How can we as a community, keep the call of Jesus, his story for us, front and center? How do we remember his gracious, transformative, radical story that he tells for our lives? Well, the only way that you and I are going to grow in our experience and our delight of his call, the only way we're going to find the power to stick it out with Jesus in the long haul, especially when it gets hard, is when we see how deeply committed Jesus is to us before we've ever committed to him. You see, Jesus isn't calling you and I to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He calls you to, put, to, to leave your family and to leave the security of um, the things that we have worked so hard for. He left the perfect relationship of heaven and the security and the comforts there as the prince of heaven to come down into our world and to be lonely and to be abandoned and ultimately to be killed on our behalf. You see, he did this for us, and he did this to secure us into his family. As we dwell on these facts together, they will become the center of gravity in our life, the core of our identity. Jesus loves you, and he has called you to follow him. And it will reorient and transform your life. But at the end of the day, it is the story that can make sense of your life. It's big enough to hold your identity, identity to, to answer the question, who am I? You are a beloved child of God. He has brought you into his family, and he has sent you into this world to extend his kingdom through love and mercy and grace. That's a story that's big enough and safe enough and gracious enough to make sense of everything in our lives. That's God's word to you. That's his call in your life. That's the story that we need to be telling one another over and over if we're going to believe it. Let's pray. Jesus, you've been incredibly good to us. You left the comforts of heaven so that we might have access to heaven. You brought us into your family so we could experience the love of your family. And your word, your call in our lives is an invitation to respond to you in faith. I do pray that you would grow our faith of your promises, of of who you are for us. Grow our delight in you this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.